2 Timothy 4 we're reading from. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching hears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I send Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Trias and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, the metalworker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him, because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defence, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesaurus. Erastus stayed in Corinth and I let Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with you, be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Thanks so much, Mark. Uh, sterling effort on all those names, I thought. Uh, well done. Uh, we're coming to last in our series in 2 Timothy. This is a leadership letter, so that's its focus, uh, thinking through Paul giving instructions to Timothy to carry the baton. And uh, the whole letter's like that, and I thought, uh, given the interim period this church is in, I thought I might just pray for the leadership team here and those involved in leadership. Uh, it's an important role that they have as they... Uh, guard and shepherd in the midst of God's people right now. So let me uh, pray for them on your behalf. And uh, I know you'll keep supporting and encouraging them and working together with them. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your uh, great kindnesses to us. And we thank you that one of your gifts to us is in the provision of leaders for your people. Uh, Father, we pray for the leadership team and for others involved, for uh, cares, Melissa in the office and people holding key ministry roles. We pray that in the absence of a uh, permanent senior pastor at this point, that you'll keep uh, giving them wisdom, energy, uh, insight as they make uh, good decisions and as they pastor and serve the community of your people here. 
Father, we pray this period will be a time of enormous encouragement, a time of um, seeing people encounter you through your word and grow, a time where this church binds together even more strongly in their service of you. So, Father, we, we thank you, we commend them to you, and we commend ourselves to you as we come to your word this morning, that you'll help us to hear this word and be settled in our minds and hearts on what you've called us to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, some people are renowned for the famous last words they utter. Okay, So uh, you may not have heard of Buddy Rich. He was regarded as one of the greatest jazz drummers to ever live. And he went in for the operation that he ultimately didn't recover from in 1987. And as he was being prepped for surgery, the nurse asked him, is there anything you can't take? Fair enough question. He said, yeah, country music. Right, that was his response. I think that's clever, right, from a jazz, jazz drummer. Uh, or James Rogers. You might have heard of James Rogers either. He was executed by a firing squad in Utah in the United States. And before he was executed, they asked him the standard last question, any last requests? He said, yes, could someone please bring me a bulletproof vest? Right? <laughs> clever. Uh, Paul the Apostle, he's on death row. Uh, and you pick that up as you get into this last chapter, verse 6. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. Now, the drink offering idea is the language of the Old Testament sacrifice. So he's being sacrificed. Uh, that's the way he understands what's going on for him. When he talks about his departure, he's not doing what some of us would have done over the last month, gone off on a holiday adventure. Right? It's not that sort of departure. He is weighing anchor. He's setting sail for the last time. He's going to go and stand before God. Uh, he's about to be executed at the hands of Nero, the Roman emperor. That's his understanding. And so it's appropriate for him to be thinking about these last moments, to reflect on his life, especially as he writes uh, to young Timothy. Uh, not so much trying to be clever, but reflecting on things of significance at the end of his life. A few years ago in the United States, there was a survey done of 95-year-olds, right? people who'd lived to 95, and they were asked questions as they reflected on their lives and what they would have done differently if they had their time over again. Here were some of the things these 95-year-olds said when they were asked this question. They said they would have spent more time reflecting, not just reacting. Uh, they said... They wish they'd taken more risks. Can you imagine 95-year-olds in a room? I wish I'd taken more risks. You know, it's sort of an interesting sort of idea. And then the other thing is, they said they wish they'd done more things which would have outlived them, lasted beyond their life. So here you have Paul at the end of his life. Not so much clever words, but certainly profound words. What sort of things are going on in his head? Regrets? A sense of pride at what he's achieved? I think the thing that hits me when I come to this chapter, I mean, it's, it's, it's emotionally weighty, but the thing that really strikes me is how content he is. How content he is. Verse 7. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. 
I've kept the faith. See, how do you, how do you live and die without regrets and content? Paul gives us some really helpful insights, I think, into this and also how we carry the baton forward until that day. He starts off talking about the fact that we are accountable before God, that sense of accountability. In 1993, uh, I was commissioned as the senior minister of Holy Trinity in town. So I was 34, 35, so I was relatively young in that role. And uh, I'd never been a senior pastor anywhere before. And I felt the weight of it. And I came in the night of the commissioning with uh, God's people gathering, went into my office just to pray. And there was a letter on my desk from the previous senior minister, Reg Piper. Now, Reg had been the one who, from almost the earliest days of becoming a Christian, had instructed me and uh, trained me up and rebuked me and uh, sorted me out on a number of occasions. And so I had this letter, I opened it up, and it was a weighty letter from a father in the faith to his son in the gospel. And I was in tears as I read this letter and just felt the sense of, you know, um, just the partnership in the gospel and the kind and gentle care that he'd shown me. To Timothy is a weighty letter. Paul is a, a friend and a mentor to Timothy. He's a father and the Lord to this young protege in the faith. But I want you to see very clearly that the main weight or impact of this letter is not so much that Paul is writing it. That's not where the, the, the big weight is. And you pick it up when you look at verse 1. Paul says to Timothy, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. I give you this charge. Do you understand what he's saying here? Those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we live in the full view of the Lord of the universe. We do it every day of our lives. That's the one that we stand before. He knows us, he sees us, and in due course, every person on the planet, every person in this room, we will stand before him on the last day. Will that be when you die or when he returns to this world? We will stand before Jesus and he will be our judge. Now, that could be quite a terrifying thought. Uh, I worked as a lawyer for a few years, and I remember the first time I appeared before a magistrate to give a guilty plea. So it was a a fairly minor criminal matter, but I'd never appeared in court before, and I stood before the magistrate. Now, the way it works is your client pleads guilty to the charge. The lawyer then gives a little speech about why the judge should be kind to him, and the judge sentences the person appropriately, right? And we're looking at a fine of some sort. Anyway, I introduced myself, um, we pleaded guilty, and then I read out my little prepared speech on what the magistrate should do. Now, I think the magistrate... I was just shaking, you know, quivering. It was the first time I'd ever been in court. I think the magistrate had worked out this was my first time. 
because the magistrate, most magistrates just sort of listen, take notes, pass sentence, right? The magistrate suddenly got very interested in my client and he had a lot of questions he wanted to ask me about my client, you know? Oh, Mr. Harrington, X, or Mr. Harrington, Y. And I, and I remember when he asked the first question, I thought, you're not meant to do this, you know? Like, <laughs> I'm meant to give my speech, you're meant to give your sentence, you're not meant to ask questions, you know? I remember... You know, and I'm, he was just playing with me like that. But there, it was a terrifying sort of occasion. Uh, so piddling, though, by comparison with appearing before the judge of heaven and earth, the judge of the whole universe, the judge of all eternity. I mean, that is so weighty. Paul's about to face up. It would be natural to be extraordinarily apprehensive. But then you look at verse 8. Paul says, There is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. He seems a tad confident, perhaps even just a little bit arrogant, Really, when you're thinking about what he's about to face up to. But I guess it, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, after all, he's an apostle. Uh, you know, one of the special chosen ones. He's a bit like an archbishop of the first century, you know. Uh, he gets a first-class travel ticket to heaven. Makes sense. I mean, he's done a lot for Jesus. Perfectly reasonable. Except this letter doesn't feel that way. Not when you read through it. Back in chapter 1, verse 15, Paul, he spent most of his time ministering in the Asia area, the ancient Asia area. And he says in verse 15 of chapter 1, all in Asia have deserted him. Not something you whack in your CV. You know, I was a failure at my last job. Please give me a new one. You know, like, that's almost what it is. Then you get to this last chapter and he says... Demas, is obviously a mate of Paul's, has deserted him. You get to verse 14, and we're told Alexander had done him harm. You get to verse 16, and he says again, everyone has deserted him. You see, Paul is not confident when he comes to stand before God because of what he has done. That's not where his confidence rests. It's because of what God has done for him. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, God has saved us, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace in Christ. So let me ask you this morning, uh, at this present point in time, most of you are relatively young, probably not expecting to die any time soon, but as you think about that moment either your death or the return of Jesus to this world, do you feel confident about facing up on that occasion? Do you feel secure as you face up on that occasion? Can I say that if your trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you should feel super confident, super confident. But if you're not confident, it'll be because you're trusting in yourself or what you've done.
Do you understand? When you're relying upon what God has done for you in Jesus, totally confident. But not because of you, but because of God and what he's done for you in Christ. Not confident? It's because that's not where your hope rests and confidence rests. It's more based on what you've done, what you think you've achieved. And there's no security in that. So even for the apostle, the apostle, right, the one who's evangelized most of the known world at this point, he is super confident. Even though he thinks it's all gone to dust through his fingers, super confident because of what God has done for him in Christ. Okay? Remember who you stand before. We have a performance-based relationship with God. Do you understand? It's performance-based. Not ours, not our performance, but God's performance for us in Jesus. Performance-based. God for us. That's the first thing. What Paul then goes on, he's talking particularly to Timothy, but I think it applies to us all. He starts talking about fulfilling your ministry from verses 2 to 5. The chapter break here between chapters 3 and 4 is is particularly unhelpful. Remember that um, in terms of our Bibles... The editorial editions, the chapter breaks, the verse numbers, everything like that, they're, they're later editions to try and help us find bits in the Bible. Okay? So, uh, and most of the time, it's really helpful the way it's broken up. But here, 2 Timothy 3 and 4 is particularly unhelpful to break. 2 Timothy 3 that we haven't looked at in this series is all about the fact that the scriptures are the foundation for salvation and ministry. Right? It's a big chapter on the Bible, basically. When we get to chapter 4... Paul talks to Timothy about, therefore, using the scriptures in his ministry. The importance of the Bible, chapter 3, chapter 4, the way it should be used in ministry. Verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, I give you this charge, preach the word. Now, he doesn't have so much in mind the art form, you know, what I'm sort of doing right now. But he is saying to Timothy, declare the sense of urgency what God says, based on the authority of his word. And it's based on the conviction that only what God says will bring life. And it's critical. I caught up with a Baptist pastor a little while ago, a guy who's been a friend of mine for a couple of decades. He'd gone to a new church and he he said to me there was a preaching roster already established. It had taken him a while to work out that one of the people on the preaching roster was a universalist. That is, this uh, person who was on the preaching roster didn't believe that God would judge anyone at the end of the age, no matter what they believed. He didn't think there was any hell. Uh, he thought basically it was compulsory heaven for everyone, no matter what religion they followed or what they did. And this guy was steely in his conviction that no one who had those sort of views should ever be allowed to teach the Bible, not just preach, but lead a small group or teach children or youth or anything like that. Because the word of God that provides the means and clarity about salvation is so important. You don't let just anyone do that. See, it does matter what people believe, and it does matter what we teach. A couple of years ago, Sue and I went for a tour of a mosque in Dubai, where it was explained to us what Muslims believed. And it was very clear, at the end of the age, 
Our lives will be weighed up based on the angel on the left shoulder and the right shoulder, to, you know, one measuring up the good things we've done, the bad, and provided the good outweighed the bad, you'd be in heaven. Right? Now, do you understand that is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches? Exact opposite. There is no word of salvation there at all. I'm not even going Muslims. Um, I'm just saying that the reality is there is no hope in that message because there is no confidence because it's based on what I do, not what Jesus has done. Do you understand? It just falls and crumbles to the ground. But it doesn't need to be another religion. Um, on that same trip, I think we were in New York for a few days and we went down to the Manhattan district to Wall Street. Well, there's no call to prayer five times a day in Wall Street, let me tell you. But they do ring a bell every morning to call people to the stock exchange to start trading and worshipping the dollar. <laughs> there are lots of ways in which we can be worshippers. It can be family, it can be hedonism, it can be health. You know, people look for their hope in all sorts of different spots. But only, only the gospel truly brings life. It's the only way. And only the gospel will enable you to stand uncondemned before God on the day of judgment. That is the only basis on which that can occur. That means God's word is central. It's central for elders and leaders and leadership team people here at Trinity Hills. It's essential if you're in a church ministry position of any sort, with children or growth groups or youth or music or doesn't matter what sort of ministry. The word of God is central. Pauline goes on to explain how to go about teaching this word of God from verse 2. He says, be prepared in season and out of season. Uh, sometimes people will readily listen to God's word, to, to the gospel. Um, I've got a mate over in Sydney who says, Right now, the Chinese are God's favourites. And it's true, actually, here in Australia, at least, we're seeing large numbers of people from China hear and respond and put their trust in Jesus. It's quite extraordinary. Whereas in other, with other groups, it's much tougher going. God's favourites. You see, sometimes when you're about evangelism and speaking the word of God, there'll be opposition from governments or that you'll be persecuted or your friends or you'll be mocked, whatever it is, sometimes people will hear. But whatever the case, always stick with the gospel. Verse 2, correct, rebuke and encourage. Paul's instructing Timothy. There's a lovely balance to these words, isn't there? Uh, I think sometimes... Um, Preachers like me can be too negative. You know, you can um, beat people about the head. Lots of correction and rebuking, you know. And, and sometimes we need to hear that there's a balance with grace, the encouragement. But also preachers like me can be too focused on encouraging, uh, telling Christians how wonderful they are and what a great job they're doing. We emphasise love, uh, assurance, but there's no talk of sin or repentance. See, there's a balance to teaching the Bible. And good leaders, I think, do both because the Bible contains both. 
and both are applicable in different situations. Verse 3, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. The world in which we live is very self-help, self-focused. That's, that's the Western world we find ourselves in. And it's easy to adapt the gospel into that sort of situation. God wants us to live to our full potential as his creatures. How can becoming a follower of Jesus help us do that? Now, do you understand how extraordinarily self-centered that is? Whereas the Bible is fundamentally God-centered. It's not about me self-actualizing and achieving my goals in life. It's about glorifying God. And if you focused on, on what's going to help me achieve my potential, then inevitably when we come to the Bible, we'll, we'll airbrush out the things about sin and hell and judgment and suffering, the exclusive claims of Christ. Because they're not convenient or popular. We don't have that freedom. Recently in the United States, there was a survey done of churchgoers. And the only topic that was surveyed was whether people believed in hell or not. And we're talking about churchgoers, right? Less than 50% of people believed in hell, that it actually existed. Now, let me say, that is a natural consequence of the culture in which we live. So it's, a, it's a natural outworking of that reality. And that means in the face of that sort of world, we need leaders. You need a senior pastor in due course, but leaders currently in your church who have a level of steel in their spine. Verse 5, keep your head, endure hardship. Do you know, I, I think one of the real indicators of the fact that Paul is clear-minded about this is the fact that he names names in this letter. Like verse 10, Demas, he loved the world, right? Well, if we went back to chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, it talks about Hymenaeus and Philetus who've departed from the truth and destroyed the faith of some. Friends, it is tough, isn't it, to name people in church when they've gone astray? Don't you reckon? Andrew Severin, what an idolater. You all should know Andrew Severin is an idolater, right? Yeah, we, if I was being serious at that point, you'd feel a tad nervous, wouldn't you? And, you know, like, and I might be next, you know, like, you know, it, yeah, like, he names people, doesn't he? And who knows? There's a good chance their wives are still in the congregation or their kids or their friends. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a free swing. So what does he do it? Well, they're giving him a hard time. It's payback. No. Nothing like that's ever going on for this guy. It's important. Because he's preparing people to meet Jesus. And you can't afford to just gloss over stuff like that. You need to call a spade a spade at this point. You need leaders who have steel in their spine and who have courage to speak the word of God. And then finally, what, what's so clear throughout this chapter 
is the fact that Paul understands that faithfulness is success. How do you measure success normally in our world? Um, how do year 12 students measure success? Well, based on their ATAR score. And if you get in your 90s, you've done pretty well, you know. And if you get in your 80s, that's good. And do you know what I mean? Like we measure based on the marks. That's the way you do it. How do you work out what a successful cricket team is? Well, it depends on whether they hold onto the ashes or not. Right? That's the measure. Who's a su successful doctor? One who heals their patients. Uh, a successful salesperson is someone who sells lots of product. A successful Christian leader? A successful Christian? Well, a Christian leader, it's based on whether the church is large, the budget is significant. Successful evangelist, well, you see how many people have been converted. A successful Christian parent. Are there kids established in life and going on in the Lord? I guess you'd be tempted to do those sort of things. But it's interesting, here in 2 Timothy, success is trusting Jesus and his word. Paul says, verse 6, The time for my departure has come. Notice what else he says at that point. I have converted many. I've written large slabs of the New Testament. I can preach a great sermon. I have developed a huge following. And in 2,000 years, people will still be talking about me. Yeah? He doesn't say that, does he? What does he say? Verse 7, I kept the faith. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. And the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me the crown of righteousness. Now, don't get me wrong. At this point, Paul is bruised. Uh, if he's at all human, he'll be sad because his mates have let him down. He's feeling isolated at this point. Some have even given up the faith. He's in prison. He's about to die. There's, there's lots of difficult things that are happening for this guy. And maybe... Uh, you feel a bit the same way as you reflect on your life as a follower of Jesus. You might be a parent whose kids have wandered away from Jesus. Maybe you're not even sure if your neighbours know you're a Christian. You feel a bit of a failure on that front. Or at work, you haven't had much impact on your colleagues. Maybe you're under fire because you are stuck to your guns because you're a follower of Jesus and you feel the weight of that you might be discouraged and you've, you've fallen down you've been seduced into thinking something or someone has more importance in life than the Lord Jesus himself and his gospel you found your focus shifting and your thinking actually is this world is really so vitally important that you've lost sight of eternity and perspective that gives you the capacity to understand life in this world. You've taken your eyes off the fact that the key in life is to be able to stand before God on that last day and receive that crown of righteousness because you have trusted in Jesus. And that in the end, that is what counts finishing 
the race. Now, can I make it really clear? None of us run the perfect race. Now, we all sin, we all get bruised, we all get worn out. And maybe right now you have fallen by the wayside. Maybe that's your situation. Can I encourage you to fix your eyes again on Jesus and his eternal promises? And can I encourage us as a community to keep looking out for people around us so that when we see people have a stumble, we don't do the individualistic Western thing and presume they'll be okay, but we actually get down and pick them up and keep running together. That's our task. It's a really stirring conclusion to the apostle's life in terms of his writing. When I was uh, ordained as an Anglican minister, uh, soon my wife had had the first section of 2 Timothy chapter 4 done by a calligrapher and framed for me. So I uh, put it on today. So 2 Timothy 4 uh, verses 1 to 5. And what she did was she um, got the calligrapher to stick my name at the top of this instead of Timothy's. You know, Paul, I give you this charge. Right? Now, enormously, um, enormously helpful thing to do for me as I was engaging in ministry. But can I say it's not just a word for ordained ministers. It's a word for leaders, but it is a word for all believers. And what I'd like to do as we finish is to read this out, and in a sense, at the start of this year, to charge us as the people of God, as we press forward together in his service. And just like um, Sue stuck my name at the top of it, dear Paul, I, I would love you to stick your name at the start of this. And hear the word of God to you at this point. Uh, you're not Timothy. You may not be a church you know, leader of a congregation. But we're all believers. And as the leaders go, so the people of God go. Put your name in at the start. And hear the word of God to you. About putting your trust in him and running the race. If I have my time, I'd love to be able to actually go row by row. And say, dear Grace, you know, and Brian and Sue and Jonathan and Ken and Greg and Merrill and Phil and Alison and, you know, Angie and Andrew and Debbie. And I'd love to just go through everyone. But we'd be here Ted, longer than we need to be if I did that. And, uh, but I'd love to read this out and for you to hear the charge of God. Okay? So let me do that right now. So, dear, stick your name in. I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, 
that will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, but you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Amen. Amen.